competitors would cross a line if they copied your distinctiveness, assuming your identifiers were properly chosen and protected. Distinctiveness is intrinsically tied to intellectual property. Hello, and welcome to the Brandtune podcast, which covers all things brand-related, including the essential trademark and IP dimension. I'm your host, Shireen Smith, IP lawyer, brand manager, and author of the upcoming book, Brandtuned, The New Rules of Branding, Strategy, and Intellectual Property. Do sign up on brandtune.com to attend the book launch on the 28th of September 2021. Hello and welcome back to the Brandtune podcast. I hope you had a great summer break. I love this time of year. It's always held more of an aura of new beginnings for me than spring or even the new year. With the imminent release of my book later this month, my sense of excitement around something new starting is at an all-time high. Now, we've got some fantastic episodes lined up for you, ready for release in the upcoming season. We're also coming up to the 100th episode of the podcast on the 17th of September. I'm so pleased to have managed to keep going this long. The podcast has certainly become part of my routine, so I hope it's here to stay for the long run. This week, I want to talk about distinctiveness and differentiation, which is the subject of some debate in the branding industry. Now, differentiation is about how a brand differs from its competitors. Certainly, Jack Trout's book, Differentiate or Die, really resonated with me deeply when I bought it back in 2011. I read the book cover to cover and tried to apply it to my own business so I can well understand the school of thought in branding that believes differentiation is the key fundamental to focus on. On this view, it's essential to find something your brand is the only one offering While that sounds fine in theory, in practice, differentiation is a tall order. And also, it doesn't last long term because competitors copy any differentiation strategy that looks like it's working. In any industry, you therefore tend to find a sea of sameness as everyone tends to end up saying the same things. For example, to differentiate my law firm, Azrites, I mentioned on our website how our low overheads meant that we could offer competitive pricing. The fact that we didn't operate out of expensive offices with atriums, that we didn't employ an expensive team of lawyers, 
but instead had access to expert consultant solicitors who we involved when necessary to support a client's needs. These were all points that I highlighted. Back then, the business model of using consultant lawyers hadn't taken off in the way it has now. On our website, we also talked about our unique approach of charging fixed fees rather than hourly rates because we don't like to surprise clients with invoices they aren't expecting. That, too, has now become commonplace among law firms. Another way we attempted to differentiate was by specializing in intellectual property law. That means that we know the answer to common questions clients have just off the top of our heads because this is the stuff we deal with all the time. So we don't need to do extensive research to advise, which means obviously it costs clients less to use us than a non-specialist. This positioning is also largely irrelevant now that intellectual property has become so important that it's increasingly offered by many corporate law firms. If you think about it, the way we tend to remember brands is not generally based on how they differ from their competitors. Just Think of some of the brands you buy. You'll probably find that you have your preferred brands for certain products. For example, I like clothes by Gerard Darrell and Betty Barclay. So if I'm looking for a new outfit, I'll check those designers out first to see if they have something suitable before looking elsewhere. I have no idea how these designers' clothes differ from each other or from other designers. I just know that I've often liked their clothes when I've tried them on. They're comfortable and flattering, so I've now developed a preference for these designers. I'm sure there are plenty of other designers whose clothes I would love, but these two have stayed in my memory for some reason, and I save time by looking at what they have on offer if I'm looking for something new to buy. Another important point to notice about your preferred brands is this. Unless you're in the advertising or branding industry, you probably have no clue about the philosophy of the brands you buy from and are probably unaware of their positioning strategy in terms of how they purposefully set out to differ from other brands. All I know is that I buy clothes under these two designers' labels because I just like their clothes. That's it. I like the product. A good product is indeed what makes a brand successful and ultimately well-known. Another example, take mayonnaise. Now, I like Hellman's mayonnaise. And when I've had to buy an alternative because Hel you know, Hellman's wasn't in stock, 
I've not liked the taste of the alternative as much. So I return to Hellman's when I next want to buy mayonnaise. It's purely about the product. It has nothing to do with how the brand seeks to set itself apart from its competitors. They happen to have a recipe that produces a taste I prefer, and that's why I buy Hellman's mayonnaise. You see, the fact is, it's impossible to be different to competitors in an enduring way because competitors will also introduce benefits and features that others in the category offer if they see that the market is responding to a presence of a feature or benefit. For example, Dyson was different when it introduced the bagless vacuum cleaner. It even had a patent protecting that difference. However, a few years on, if you search Google for bagless vacuum cleaners, you find a plethora of brands offering their own versions of bagless vacuum cleaners. See, it's perfectly legitimate from a legal perspective for competitors to copy each other's differentiation strategy. There is no monopoly over ideas. Provided you don't cross any legal lines, there is nothing anyone can do to stop a competitor copying. So it's worthwhile to focus your energies on meeting a market need that a group of customers has by doubling down on understanding what they want rather than worrying about how you're going to differentiate yourself from competitors. The way to create a product or service that will become the first choice for your target customers is to double down on understanding those customers. The downside of focusing on differentiation was noted by the Ehrenberg Bass Institute's research. They found that differentiation does not last. People remember brands due to their distinctive features, such as their brand name, logos, any symbols, taglines, and the like rather than based on how they differ from their competitors. This rings true to me based on looking at my own personal experience of brands. If I didn't remember the identifiers of the brands I like, mainly their name, but sometimes also what they look like, I wouldn't be able to find them again. For example, I know what the Hellman's mayonnaise packaging looks like, so that even before I remembered them by name, I could find them on the supermarket shelf based on the appearance of the packaging. This identification purpose of brands should really be the focus when you create your brand. You should primarily aim to create the most distinctive brand you can by choosing your brand identifiers, that is your brand name and logo, symbols, any characters or music, etc., to be different to what competitors in your category are using. 
and focus on legal protectability as an uppermost consideration. That's how you stand out in an enduring way and can stop competitors copying your distinctiveness. Provided you choose brand elements that are legally available and protectable, and you actually protect them, you create a distinctive brand that you can be uniquely recognized by and avoid seeing competitors using similar identifiers that confuse consumers. Now, this may sound disappointingly shallow, but in fact, distinctiveness is what really matters long-term because brand identifiers are protected by intellectual property laws. They contain the value of your brand as you grow in success. That is why I want to highlight the role of IP in distinctiveness. I don't think I've brought intellectual property into the discussion as much as I should have in past episodes, as it is so relevant when brand identifiers are being chosen or changed, and branding professionals are often focused on differentiation, the significance of choosing brand identifiers with the legal dimension as an intrinsic aspect of the choice tends to be overlooked. Competitors would cross a line if they copied your distinctiveness, assuming your identifiers were properly chosen and protected. Distinctiveness is intrinsically tied to intellectual property. It's not just a case of designing a beautiful-looking brand. If you don't protect what's created immediately and consider what to create based on intellectual property laws, then you risk lack of distinctiveness down the line. Anyone who is aspiring to create a substantial business needs to double down on creating a distinctive brand. To celebrate the release of the Brand Tuned book, we're hosting a launch event on the 28th of September when key figures like Rory Sutherland, David Arker and Rob Myerson are interviewed on video. The book is about how to create a distinctive brand using IP to stand out. It's in line with the evidence-based research from the Ehrenberg Bass Institute into how brands grow, which highlighted the important role identifiers like the brand name, logo, symbols, etc. play in bringing brands to mind in consumers' memories. It's critically important to ensure the identifiers created for your brand are legally distinctive and protected in the right way so they prevent competitor copying. Do register to attend and take part in the special offers available. Sign up at brandtune.com. The link is in the show notes. While there is good awareness that brands can become valuable intellectual property assets, 
how intellectual property should actually be reflected in the brand creation process is poorly understood in the branding industry as well as in the entrepreneur community. Indeed, IP is not part of the training of marketers, designers, accountants, MBA students, etc. To create a distinctive brand, you need to consider the legal test for distinctiveness under trademark law for whatever brand element you are going to create. That's the way to create value for the business with your branding. Apart from the brand name, other identifiers a brand might create includes a logo, such as the stylized way that Virgin writes its name, a face icon or character, such as the Michelin man, a symbol like the McDonald's golden arches or the Nike swoosh, the shape of packaging like the Tabasco or Coca-Cola bottles, a distinctive font, say the Snickers or Mars font, a tagline phrase like Just Do It or John Lewis's Never Knowingly Undersold, a sound Especially, you know, I remember Air on a G-String, that music characterized Hamlet cigars when cigars were allowed to advertise on TV. Um, A color or group of colors like the Tiffany blue or the Barbie pink is also another potential identifier. See, the role of identifiers is to uniquely identify your brand, so there is no confusion that it's you. This is the essence of branding and distinctiveness, being recognized as the source or origin of your products and services. Depending on your product and target consumer, different identifiers of yours will trigger consumers' memories and recognition of your brand. What is less well appreciated is that your brand codes can only perform this essential function if you legally own the identifiers your brand relies on. In many situations, you may not be able to legally own an identifier as your trademark, unless you become a substantial business and become uniquely associated to an identifier such as a color. Now, in my view, people should choose two to three identifiers apart from their brand name that they can trademark as soon as the identifiers are created for their brand. Different legal considerations come into play depending on the identifier involved. This means that while the ultimate aim is to register the identifiers you use as trademarks, there may be other legal steps you need to take in the interim to ensure you can be uniquely identified and associated to a brand code. I explain this in more depth in my book, Brandtuned, the new rules of branding, strategy, and intellectual property.
Now, some brand codes, such as colors, are difficult to own. So don't rely on color as one of the two to three identifiers that you rely on. Think of color as an additional code rather than putting all your energies into color alone. Choosing identifiers with legal protection as an uppermost consideration means that designers need to either work with lawyers when they create brands, or if it's too expensive to involve lawyers, then branding professionals should plug the gap in their own knowledge by learning some key points about how IP law applies in branding so they know what to look out for and when to suggest their clients should involve a lawyer to do legal checks, for example. I'm creating an accelerator program for those who want to create a brand using IP strategically. We're taking registrations of interest right now. If this is of potential relevance to you, then head over to brandtune.com and register your interest. I will be running a pilot program soon, so you will be among the first to be notified when that kicks off. There are many benefits in being part of the pilot program. A basic understanding of what intellectual property actually is also helps. IP is an umbrella term that refers to a whole range of different legal rights that govern creations of the mind. These IP rights include copyright, trademarks, and designs, which are relevant in branding. I have previously given an overview of these rights and how they regulate intangibles, so I won't repeat it here. Suffice to say that in practice, Trademarks and copyright are important IP rights to understand. If you use brand identifiers such as shapes, colors, musical jingles, etc., you need to become familiar with the legal concept of distinctiveness so you know how brand identifiers can be protected. Trademarks are how the law protects names, slogans, symbols, taglines, sounds, and other brand elements that identify a business as the source or origin of goods and services. So focus on creating two to three identifiers to uniquely associate with your brand that you can immediately protect as your trademarks. Distinctiveness and trademarks are all about preventing competitors using similar identifiers. That's how your brand can stand out long term. Competitors tend to copy any successful brand. So that's why it's imperative to understand what can be protected as well as whether the brand name and other identifiers that you want to use are available to use. 
protection is key to maintaining distinctiveness. So don't assume that protection is optional or is automatically available for whatever it is that's created. I would suggest being bold and creating highly distinctive branding, focusing on securing trademark rights. You see, while in a pre-21st century environment, brand creation was separated from brand protection, in the digital global environment of the internet, separating the two is increasingly untenable because businesses using names and other identifiers that are similar to their competitors will be instantly found out or copied and would lose their distinctiveness as a result. Trademarks should be considered whenever you choose or change a brand identifier because these identifiers are the container of the brand's value. The more sales and profits a brand generates, the more valuable its brand becomes, and that value is contained in its IP, namely in the brand name and other identifiers that are owned by the brand. Given this connection between brand value and IP, it makes sense to choose identifiers with protectability as an uppermost consideration. If you're branding a business that is intending to become substantial, then your approach to the brand elements created for your brand should be guided by the law. Such a business should choose identifiers that it can become uniquely recognized by. And that means choosing identifiers which it can immediately protect as trademarks. Some designers approach brand identifiers as if they were analogous to a person changing their clothes. They freely change their clients' branding, as I've discovered from personal experience. Alternatively, sometimes it's the business owner that decides to change everything because they become bored by having the same look and feel and want a new look. This is an approach that is really only appropriate for businesses that don't have aspirations to grow or to be really well-known. As long as such a business doesn't step on anyone else's toe, it can create what it likes and can chop and change its identifiers whenever it wants to. It needn't bother with protecting them either. It could focus on using a brand name, ideally one that's protected, and otherwise just use identifiers that it might change every few years. However, this approach to branding is totally inappropriate for a business that has aspirations to greatness. So it's important to actually understand what a business is trying to achieve before adopting you know, a cavalier approach to the branding that's created. Businesses that are serious about achieving success long-term should consider protectability as a primary factor when choosing brand names and identifiers. They should protect 
two to three of their identifiers with trademark registration, and they should not change their identifiers ever unless there are intrinsically powerful reasons why change is needed. Stick with what you have because any changes must be reflected on the trademark registers, and this can become expensive if you're protecting the brand in several countries internationally, which a serious business should do. You would be damaging the memory structures in consumers' minds if you make changes to your branding. What can go wrong if you change your brand identifier without updating your trademark registration to the new version is evident in a trademark case between Lacoste and Crocodile in New Zealand. Now, Crocodile International noticed that Lacoste was not using a consistent crocodile design. The crocodile design they were using was different to the version they had registered. This presented an opportunity for Crocodile International to apply to cancel Lacoste's trademark registration because if a business does not use its trademark in the form in which it's registered for more than five years, then its registration can be cancelled on the grounds of non-use. In its defence, Lacoste argued that it should not lose its trademark for lack of use, because while it didn't use the crocodile logo in the form it was registered, it did use the trademark because it used different versions of crocodiles, and therefore it was still using a crocodile as its trademark. This broad argument that any use of a crocodile is use of their registered crocodile trademark was rejected out of hand by the court. The court said no, claiming a monopoly over the concept of a crocodile was just too broad, so Lacoste's trademark was revoked. So you see, it weakens an organization's position to make changes to its designs that are not then reflected on the trademark registers. If Lacoste had updated its registration, Crocodile would have been prevented from registering its crocodile design because it would have been too similar to Lacoste's trademark. Effectively, therefore, Lacoste would have got the wide scope of protection it was arguing it had by virtue of its use of a crocodile in its branding if only it had maintained an up-to-date trademark registration. Trademark registration gives you a wide scope of protection. So given these external manifestations of a brand, its name and distinctive brand identifiers are the containers which capture the value of the brand that they're associated with and that even tiny changes to them can have significant financial implications for an organization, marketers need a basic understanding of how IP impacts brands. 
The marketing department is the closest to the brand and is therefore best placed to decide when to involve legal. If the marketing department decides to tweak its logo or other identifiers, or for example, in the Lacoste case, to use different um, types of crocodile, how is anyone ever going to know if if they don't actually inform the IP function that they're doing this and therefore that a new registration is needed? Or if they oversee a successful campaign where a new brand identifier is created, it's really up to them to notify whoever is in charge of IP in their organization that this new asset has been created. So the cost of making changes to the logo could be substantial for a global business with trademarks in other countries. And tinkering with logos is a bad idea on so many counts. As mentioned, Lacoste was unable to enforce its trademark because they hadn't kept their registration up to date. To illustrate how IP impacts brand value, consider the UK-based Arcadia Group, which sought a buyer of its businesses when it went into administration in 2020. Now, ASOS offered to buy just its brands, which included brands like Topshop, Topman, and Miss Selfridge, But because they had no use for the physical stores, they just bought the brands and the physical stock, paying $295 million, of which $30 million was for the stock. So $265 million was for the brands alone. The tangible manifestation of this brand value is primarily contained in a brand's trademark registrations and copyrights. If there is a defect in the legal ownership of the brand identifiers, especially of the brand name, this would reduce the price that a buyer would be willing to pay for a brand. So lack of registered trademarks in the home country and key countries around the world would affect the price that a buyer would be willing to pay. I hope this episode will have made it a little clearer how fundamental a role intellectual property plays in branding. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, do sign up for the Brandtuned book launch, among other benefits of signing up is that you can become a Brandtuned ambassador and get access to the unique perks, including a no-charge one-to-one consultation with me on Zoom. You'll also be among the first to hear when I launch the pilot Brandtuned Accelerator. There's more information about the Accelerator over at brandtuned.com.